You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Russia reroutes internet traffic in occupied regions of Ukraine through Russian services. The Stormist Gang hacking on behalf of Russia. Risks of DNS poisoning. Updates on Chinese cyber espionage campaigns. Our guest, Chayton Mather of Next Pathway, finds similarities between the cloud industry and the 1849 California gold rush. Eldon Benheim of Epiro on why cybersecurity is largely a culture issue. And some more notes on ransomware operations. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. Inside Defense reports that Microsoft foresees an increase in Russian attempts to conduct disruptive cyber attacks. Meanwhile, Russia has rerouted internet traffic in occupied regions of Ukraine through Russian services. The occupiers shut down the internet in Kherson over the weekend and then restored it by routing traffic through Russian infrastructure. NetBlocks reports that on 1st of May, hours after the internet blackout in Kherson, regional provider Skynet partially restored access. However, connectivity on the network has been rerouted via Russia's internet instead of Ukrainian telecoms infrastructure and is hence likely now subject to Russian internet regulations, surveillance, and censorship. Trustwave has been tracking the activity of Stormus, a group largely unknown before Russia's invasion of Ukraine and which since February has announced ransomware attacks against Western targets. The attacks are designed to work in the interest of Russia by disrupting or otherwise discrediting Western brands, prominent companies, and other organizations. An attack it claimed against Coca-Cola is representative, flashy, and unconfirmed. Stormus has been received skeptically by the security industry, as many analysts regard them as scavengers of old leaks, and not as exhibiting any genuine ransomware chops. They remind Trustwave of another wildcard outfit, Lapsus. Trustwave says the group's motivating principles and behavior somewhat resemble the Lapsus Hacker Group, which targets entities mainly in the Western Hemisphere. Like Lapsus, Stormus is quite loud online and looks to attract attention to itself, making splashy proclamations on the dark web and utilizing Telegram to communicate with its audience and organize to determine who to hack next. While Lapsus seems to have been motivated by cash and cachet, the lulls and money, Stormus's motivations appear political. They say they're hacking in the Russian cause, and there's no reason not to take them on their word. 
but the group may have experienced a setback. Trustwave updated its report late yesterday and says the Trustwave Spider Labs team has noted Stormus's underground website became inaccessible on April 29th. At this time, it is not known why the site is down. We will continue to monitor for additional threat intelligence. Security Scorecard has released a summary of its study of the distributed denial-of-service attack against Ukrposhta, Ukraine's National Postal Service. The attack seems to have represented a reprisal for Ukrposhta's issue of a stamp commemorating the Snake Island middle finger of defiance, Russian warship Go F Yourself, and the subsequent destruction of the Russian warship in question, Black Sea Fleet flagship Moskva. Some of the key points Security Scorecard brings out include the attack lasted just over 16 hours and was launched by nearly 1,000 bots, which are now considered to be part of the Zadnost botnet. The majority of the botnets were microtik routers located in Indonesia, Thailand, and the Philippines, and the DDoS attack used DNS amplification, similar to previous Zadnost attacks on Ukrainian government and financial websites in February. Ukur Poshta was able to recover from the attack without undue difficulty. Security Scorecard thinks it sees signs that the Zadnost botnet may be running out of resources. They say SSC observes the first-time use of Russia-based bots and the reuse of Zadnost infrastructure, a possible indication Zadnost is starting to exhaust its inventory of unique infrastructure. Nozomi Networks reports finding a vulnerability that affects the domain name system implementation of all versions of UCLibc and UCLibcNG. This involves a C standard library widely used in IoT products. The vulnerability opens affected devices to DNS poisoning attacks. Sentinel Labs has been following the activities of Motion Dragon which they describe as a Chinese-aligned cyber espionage threat actor operating in Central Asia. Motion Dragon's approach is interesting, involving trial-and-error abuse of traditional antivirus products to attempt to sideload malicious DLLs. Another Chinese APT, variously called Lotus Panda, Override Panda, or Nikon, has resurfaced. Cluster 25 is tracking the APT's cyber espionage against ASEAN nations. Security Week reports that security firms see evidence suggesting links between the recently observed Black Basta ransomware operation and the Conti gang. Black Basta's high-profile victims have included Deutsche Wintechnik and the American Dental Association. Researchers at Minerva believe each Black Basta sample is specially created for a specific victim, as a company ID is hard-coded into the ransom note as well as a public key. And finally, Cisco Talos researchers have released the results of their study of leaked Conti and Hive ransomware gang chats. Both groups do extensive pre-attack research into prospective victims, and both gangs negotiate their demands and are quick to lower them, presumably on the proverbial grounds that half a loaf is better than none. Conti is hands down the more professional of the two, with Hive exhibiting a crudely direct approach to extortion as well as Slipshod OPSEC. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. 
Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. The shift to the cloud is progressing full speed ahead, picking up momentum like a snowball rolling downhill. But for many organizations, particularly those with substantial legacy assets, cloud migration is not so straightforward. Chaitan Mather is CEO at Next Pathway, a company that helps automate organizations' cloud migrations. And he thinks the move to the cloud is not unlike a gold rush from days gone by. I call it a revolution in technology, Dave. And specifically what I mean by that is um, our clients and enterprises all over the world are realizing what an absolute uh, benefit it is to migrate to the cloud. And I'll give you two examples of, of what the benefits are there. Uh, for the first time in our lives, we have literally unlimited, unlimited computing power. And then also we have unlimited storage uh, capacity at a very cost-effective price. So it, to me, is um, the, the the panning of gold and getting everything migrated over uh, to the cloud, where people can uh, literally save you know millions of dollars on infrastructure costs once they have migrated over to the cloud. Well, where do you suppose we stand right now? I mean, it, I think it's fair to say that we're a few years into this migration. How would you describe the state of things? The state of things is is very complex. I think we're in early years uh, of migration. We've recently conducted a survey of 1,200 IT professionals around the world, and our data shows that only about a third of folks' uh, enterprises around the world have migrated applications to the cloud. And I suspect that these are probably some of the easier ones. 
And therefore, I believe that the journey is going to be at least another five to seven years uh, before we've completely migrated everything to the cloud, perhaps even longer. Hmm. And what do you suppose is uh, keeping people from jumping on the bandwagon? Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of things that we're finding is, uh, and these aren't criticisms, these are just facts of legacy systems that have evolved over 20, 30, 40 years in large financial institutions, perhaps, that are very complex and very intertwined. And so I use the analogy of bowl of spaghetti. So if you want to migrate something over to the cloud, you first have to understand what you want to migrate over because you certainly don't want to lift everything and migrate it over. That just doesn't make good business sense. It would be very expensive to do so and operating it. So unraveling the spaghetti, so to speak, Dave, is really the first and most complex problem in understanding the planning of your migration. Once that's understood, then clients can uh, intelligently start to plan their migration journey over the next X number of years. I suppose uh, any size organization, but particularly medium and large size organizations, over the years, they've accumulated so much digital stuff that it has to be uh, a little bit intimidating to even take something like this on. Absolutely. And I think that um, the, I don't want to call it hesitation, not because I don't think it's hesitation. I think it's just good di- diligence and planning. I just think that folks have been trying to do that manually. And as if, as you can imagine, it would be very complex. And just to give you a quick statistic, we just finished a very large scan, a crawl uh, of a financial institution And we came up with over 30 million permutations and combinations on just a couple of their data warehouses, uh, for example. So you can just imagine if you were trying to do that in a manual fashion, there's just no way that you'd be able to do it. How do you dial in the things that can be and should be automated and the things that really deserve a a closer look by, you know, a a human to, to... to really, uh, you know, figure things out on an individual level. Yeah, if a client is, so there's two things that we do. We have um, this notion of what we call lift and optimize that I just mentioned, uh, which is taking kind of exactly on an as-is basis, Dave, uh, and migrating it over to the cloud. And those those use cases are typically end of life of an appliance. I don't want to renew my licenses with uh, whichever vendor is providing me that technology. Um, however, there's also something called lift and modernize, and so um, and an example with a lift and modernize would be is if a client wants to build a completely new enterprise data model, for example, in that case, we would be looking at it and there would be some more manual intervention into that, uh, which is still better parts of it are still automatable. Uh, but in the uh, in the lift and optimize case, it could be uh, nearly 100 percent automatable, where in the lift and modernize, it would be you know, a little bit less than that. You just have to rethink the way that um, our clients would be wanting to create their new data structures on the cloud. That's Chetan Mather from Next Pathway. A common challenge developers face is keeping meaningful communications open between various departments in the software development lifecycle. Eldon Benheim is chief architect at software supply chain security firm Apiro, and he makes the case that software supply chain security is largely an issue of corporate culture. 
The thing is that many software development shops have partitioning or, you know, siloed security organizations versus uh, development organizations. And if you think about it, application developers, you know, they make tens of uh, potentially security impacting decisions every day. So, you know, taking application security and making it, you know, someone else's job is very similar to deciding that, you know, uh, application performance or uh, concurrency correctness uh, someone is, is someone else's job. Now, in many teams, you would have a concurrency or performance expert, which is fine and helpful because they are like, you know, subject matter expert. But this does not mean that day-to-day development work uh, can, you know, put aside um, information security and specifically application security. Where do we stand today when it comes to the, the siloing of those different groups? Is this recognized as being an issue and, and are there efforts to break down those walls? I think that uh, there are efforts to break those walls. I think um, some organizations have adopted an approach where there are you know, security champions embedded in development teams, which is probably a step in the right direction. I think that there is some recognition of the notion that, you know, basic security training is is something that developers should have. But still, I think that there's some way to go. I mean, I think that our expectations from developers as far as security is concerned are still lower than what they could be. I think that it makes sense to um, expect developers to understand um, method of operations of cybersecurity attacks and understand, you know, vulnerability types and and uh, their mitigations and understand all of these in depth. Uh, obviously, we need to help them do uh, with this understanding by, you know, proper training and, and making this part of the day-to-day conversation in the development shop. In addition to understanding the, the attack methods and mitigation techniques, I think that it's important to nurture a culture where um, developers remain, you know, up to speed and, and they, they constantly consume uh, news and, and state-of-the-art information about uh, application security and cybersecurity uh, at all. Um, and then it's very important for um, development shops to, for developers, sorry, to um uh, gain a thorough understanding of the APIs and services and third-party um, uh, ser- services and products that they consume uh, so that they understand their overall uh, impacts on the system that, design, that they're designing. So Log4Shell, Log4Shell uh, is probably a very good example um, of uh, what could, ha- could go wrong if you do not uh, take into account the full capabilities and consequences of the APIs and services that you are using. I'm talking about, you know, uh, the Log4Shell team versus uh, the Java runtime team. What about uh, people who are going to resist this? You know, people generally don't like change and, and they're used to doing things the way that they're used to doing them. How do we get those people to come along? People often get it when you explain the importance. And I have found, you know, the analogy of saying, you know, security is just part of the job as much as, you know, understanding concurrency or understanding performance or correctness is part of the job. We need to simply explain that, you know, just like um, 
it is now very clear to most developers that uh, code without unit testing is incomplete because you know testing the code uh, is simply part of the code um, we need to, to to make people realize that the same applies to application security that's Eldon Ben Haim from Apiro. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Haru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.